This is Sheila's Take, a podcast where you can hear my take on everything, love, hate, relationships, family, and today's issues with a godly perspective. I'm your host, Sheila Dunbar. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Sheila's Take, where I dive into deep stories of inspiring individuals who have followed unique paths and achieved remarkable success. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting a multi-talented guest who has conquered both the world of academia and entrepreneurship, proving that life's journey can take unexpected yet fulfilling turns. Please join me in welcoming Michael Jackwith, a former chemist turned life coach with an impressive PhD from Cornell University, nearly a decade in the corporate world, world, Michael made a bold decision to embrace his entrepreneurial spirit alongside his wife, leading them to own successfully and operate not one, not two, but three businesses. What sets Michael apart is not only his invaluable experience, but his ferocious appetite for knowledge across various fields, including self-help, coaching, business, and faith-based information. Michael really is really good at taking complicated ideas and turning them into practical advice that anyone can understand. He helps people figure out how to solve real-life problems by breaking them down into simple steps. But let's not forget that laughter is a powerful tool in this journey. Michael's jovial nature and humor light up any room, creating instant connection with clients. With him, expect not only a good conversation, which I know, (laughs) but also laughter-filled moments that uplift and inspire. Welcome, Michael. Sheila, thank you so much. After such an amazing introduction, I can't wait to meet this guy too. He sounds pretty cool. I, I, I hope I can live up to even a fraction of all that. Of course you can. Of course you can. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing great. So at the time we're in winter and we're going on a camping trip with all. I'm taking six kids on a camp trip here shortly. I'm very excited. Sounds a little crazy, but uh, it's just, just, just living life. Six kids. Well, oof. all right. Well, I'm wishing you the best. <laughs> well, let's let's jump right into it, okay? Um, you have had quite a diverse journey from earning a chemistry PhD to becoming a successful entrepreneur and life coach. Could you tell us more about your decision to leave the corporate world and embark on this new path? So this was a really tough decision for me to make. Um, a couple of factors go into this. Number one, I'm a person of faith, and I believe that that submission of self to what one perceives as God's direction in life is a really, really important part. Um, Sheila, despite the amazing intro, I actually make mistakes from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I found the more often that I submit myself to that external influence of God, that the more often I go in the right direction. But even that said, I'm a stubborn goat. And so when this decision was first coming up, God gave me several little nudges to how to help in that direction. One of which was that I went from the world's best boss of all time in my first job of almost seven years mm-hmm. to the world's worst boss of all time. Wow. And it was a rough transition. And what I found myself doing was I was mentoring the other group members in my new job so much that I almost wasn't doing my own job. And most of what I was doing, I was even mentoring up. I was mentoring this guy's, this particular boss's peers. I was mentoring my peers. And I loved that part of it because the the joy, Sheila, when you take somebody who's stuck and frustrated and feels helpless, like we've all been there, that yeah. just feels horrible. Mm-hmm. And you're like, 
just with the right perspective and change and work and introspection, you unlock for them the ability to look out and say, what? It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, that's just, that's just like, it's a million bucks worth of feeling right there. Right. Yeah. And it it was super scary. I'd be lying if I said, I didn't like just not sleep for a long time being like, does this really, really, really? No, come on. Not really. But at the end of the day, we only get to live life once and, and the big guaranteed paychecks, the benefits, all the benefits. I I had golden handcuffs out the wazoo. Like it's, it's nice. It is nice. Yeah. But what's nicer yet is the deeper stuff, the meaning, the fulfillment, the impact. And and for me in particular, the confidence that I'm following the direction of the almighty. Oh yeah. Because that that's important. You, you have to follow, uh, you have to follow God's, God's lead. You know, he's leading you somewhere and he's moving you in a, in in a certain direction. And what I've known uh, what I've noticed, Michael, is that even if you try to like Jonah and the well, even if you try to get away, he's going to get you somewhere back to on that path where you need to be, because that's what you, he, he's calling you to do. Right. It is a rough journey. Like people don't really realize like, what does it mean to be in a whale's stomach? Now, interesting fact, Sheila, in the Hebrew, the way the words are used, it's not clear if Jonah was alive for those three days, the words could literally be interpreted. He died was dead three days in the whale and then raised back to life versus equally as miraculous sustained supernaturally for three days of abject utter terror and horror can you imagine what that would have been like I, for those I three days imagine. it's so funny you mentioned that because i was just reading about that i'm like you know what i never thought about that that he that he was probably you know that could have happened where he was probably dead for the three days and and resurrected i'm like wow i i never thought about that and never came to light. I just read, I literally just read that a couple of days ago. Well, if I look at like when when we use these big religious words, I think a lot of times people today get intimidated by religious words, intimidated by the Bible, mm-hmm. but it is such a source of profound psychological truth. It's inarguable psychological truth. And the phrase that I, I am leaning towards right here is this phrase, hell on earth. And if you want to know hell on earth, live in the belly of a whale. Like I have, I, I'm a hunter, and so I've opened up stomachs. It is, to say that it is stinky is an understatement. To wow. say that it's dark, it's smelly, you can't breathe, you can't eat, you can't even drink water, like it's a horrible thing. And yet we moderns like to pretend somehow that it doesn't matter what we do, that we can just go do whatever we want to and it'll work out fine. But there's some real metaphysical rules that if we don't follow them, we do end up on hell on earth. We do, exactly. Yeah. We, it, it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. And, and again, we're guided, we're led to a certain way or place and that's what we have to do. And, and if we don't, God will push us back to where we need to be. Right. Amen. Let me ask you, let let's let me ask you this. As a life coach, what prompted you to focus on converting the abstract and intellectual into practical and accessible advice? How how does that approach benefit your clients? Well, uh, bluntly, I think that's a real lack in our society of that right now. There is a tremendous number of phenomenal self-help books out there, and mm-hmm. I do not mean to speak poorly of them at all, and they're written very well by very great authors. But in a real practical level, when I look at the the psychological makeup of the people of our country, it's only a small percentage of people that feel comfortable reading those books. And I'm not trying to speak poorly of those people either. This is These are just the data set we have to work with, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so what that means then is without some other form of transmission of this data, a significant number of people are destined to some intermediate version of hell on earth. And there's a real need for this. There's a desperate hunger for this. You know, a story I will sometimes tell is when Mother Teresa first arrived in the United States, she gets off the boat or plane, I forget which, and she looks around and she says, 
I have never been to a place of such poverty. And the person with her goes, uh, well, with all due respect, mother, what are you talking about? Like, well, this is America. We're the rich country. Mm-hmm. Come on. Like, you come on. And right, she right. and her lovely little nun way goes, oh, no, no, no. You think I'm talking about financial poverty. I'm talking about emotional poverty. Yeah. And I believe that is spot on. We live in such an impoverished emotional time. And bluntly, what happened during the COVID situation mm-hmm. has only made it worse. Yeah. And we live in a lives. Henry David Thoreau was never more right when he said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And he wasn't just referring to men. But the thing is, is that we we have to get to a certain place where in this country where we've, like you said, with COVID, we've, we've kind of, it's taken us back. You know, we, we're very, I, I, to me, we're very unemotional. We are very unemotional. We're, we're, we're more, we're not, um, we don't have a lot of empathy, I don't think. So true. Know. It, it, we've lost that and and how do you think we we can get that back that's how do you think we can get that back i'll tell you a cute little story this little boy one day comes into his grandma and says grandma grandma there's a dinosaur here and she goes oh there's no such thing as dinosaurs well this goes on day after day and as slowly the dinosaur gets bigger and gets bigger and she comes up grandma grandma there's a dinosaur it's, it's getting bigger it's as big as i am now oh there's no such thing as dinosaurs well this goes on further and eventually the dinosaur gets so big it one day eats him And the lesson here is that which we ignore, the problems in our life that we don't pay attention to, Mm. will get bigger and bigger and bigger until finally they take us out. And it's a cute little example with the dinosaur and the boy, but it's a very harsh reality when it comes to the emotional coldness, the emotional deadness that we are enforcing upon ourselves. Uh, A different image and metaphor that might get to the same spot is, I don't know if you ever used one of the old school trash compactors. They're really cool. Really, you put the trash in the thing and it has a little mechanical bolty arm thing that goes down and squishes it so it's flat Mm -hmm. so you fit more trash in there, right? Well, the metaphor I like to use is we moderns are like somebody who wants to use their trash compactor but never empties it out. And we keep shoving more and more emotions down in there. Mm. But the thing with those old trash compactors, if you never emptied them, eventually the thing breaks right and all that old stuff in there starts to leak and soon you have a leak with all the gooey nastiness that spreads through your whole kitchen and now everything is covered in gooey nastiness and this is what we're doing to ourselves with our emotions is because we're not willing to live them experience them and go through them we try to run from them we try to compress them hide them shove them down there and eventually it goes bad i agree with that um with three successful businesses under your belt what valuable lessons have you learned about entrepreneurship along the way are there any specific challenges or triumphs that stand out to you oh you're laughing okay all right oh here we go <laughs> oh boy so so many lessons so many go. challenges um the first one that came to mind as soon as you asked this question is do you know how to make god laugh you tell him your plans <laughs> i say that <laughs> right i say that all the time all the time and- The first thing you've got to learn if you want to be an entrepreneur is to stop taking yourself so seriously because it's so easy. When you're in the corporate, we're like, this is my financial projection for the next 15 years. You'll see here on page 17 17, where I outline exactly what our budget expenditure should be. And you go become an entrepreneur and you're like, here's my plan for the next three days. Oh, whoop, that didn't work. All right, something new's coming. And the ability to just pivot and let go of a plan and let go of your agenda and let go of how you think things ought to be and, well, this should have worked or this should have come out this way. It doesn't matter. It either does or doesn't. You pivot and you move on. And there's a lightness that comes when you stop living according to the dance of what ought to be. And you just accept that that which is, is, and start dancing with it back. Right. And I, I think the only last other thing I'm going to throw out there 
is life is always better when you're on the roller coaster. So let me use, a, a, I love images and metaphors because I think it's so helpful. When you're a single person, right? You have ups and you have downs. And then you right. get married and the ups get bigger and the downs get bigger too. And then you have kids and those ups go way up and those downs go way down. Yes. If you're ever like traveling through Montana at two in the morning when the when the dog's puking and the kid's pooping and it's just all of it's gone bad. You're like, oh, this is a down. But there's also the sweetest moments ever when your child comes up to you and says, I love you, dad. I love this beautiful you. I want to give you that hug. And yep. yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Don't be afraid of the roller coaster. People look at the roller coaster, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's marriage, whatever. And they say, but those downs are so low. And I say, yeah, for sure they are. But the ups are up too. But I mean, that's that's life, you know. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a group of women uh, recently. We were talking and I, actually it was a gentleman also in the conversation. And we would I shared with them um, that I had been married, you know, I'm married 23 years. And yeah. in that conversation, they're like, well, you know, how is it? I'm like, well, I'm still in it, of course, but it has its highs and its lows. And if you think that being married 23 years is still easy, you're constantly working at it. You People who are married 40, 50 years, you're constantly working at it. It's not like, okay, well, I'm married now, that's it. You're constantly, you're constantly, you, you, and you have your highs, you have your lows these days. You want to... You 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 love your spouse. You love your spouse, and then they may do something that drives you nuts, and you'd be like, "Okay, oh, yeah. today I don't feel like talking," <laughs> or "I'm I'm not," you know, just you know, give me some space. So it's it's it, you you do, you, it, but that's a that's a part of life. And people, you know, they they think that everything is 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 hunky dory roses and what they see on television and. And it's not like that. And and there are, you know, once people realize that, that you are going to go through things, you, you are going to make mistakes, you know, and and through those mistakes, that's how you learn. You, you learn to either not, you know, not do it again. And you learn, you get better at it because how you if you're always doing everything right, or everything's working out for you. You know, are you going to learn if how are you going to do how are you going to act if you do if something happens and you do make a mistake? What are you going to fall apart? That's what life is about, you know. And and I feel we're kind of uh, raising a generation who you know they're they're thinking everything is honky dory. And in my generation, it was never like that. You know, it was like yeah. you know put on, pull on those boots and get out there and do what you got to do. And if you make a mistake, you get up, you dust yourself off and you go on and you, and you, and you learn from it. And from what you, what you've, what you've, uh, what has happened in the past, you learn, you grow, you move on. So true. Can I tell you a secret, but don't tell anyone this. I won't, I won't tell it. I pro listen, I promise you, I won't say it. I'm holding you to that. So it turns out, I am actually a very selfish person. And it turns out as well, so is my wife. You, you don't tell her I said that about her either. I won't. I here's won't. why I say this. Most modern people, I agree with what you said, really struggle when they are invited to look at the depth of their own selfishness, the depth of their own. I'm going to use the ancient word sin. And if you're biblical, you can take the biblical meaning. If you're not, you can simply look at that as the archery term means to miss the target. When we look at the depth and horribleness with which we miss the target, the times in my marriage that I've acted with malice, with anger, with ill intent, where I have said things that were intended to hurt. And I'm not proud of these moments, but they're right. real. And when ma what marriage does is it forces us to look into the mirror of our own wretchedness 
Mm-hmm. And that is extremely difficult and painful. I love looking in the mirror of my wife's retinas. So then I, I go <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, see, she did this and she did this. I'll just be like Adam right. in the Garden of Eve. Mm-hmm. And, but when we have to look into our own wretchedness, it is painful. And yeah. I think a lot of people today aren't ready for that. They're, they're raised in a culture that says, you're so perfect. Everything's great. All that matters is your self-esteem as you feel good about yourself. And they get married and they're like, well, shoot, I'm looking now where I was malicious. I don't feel good about myself now. Mm-hmm. Something must be wrong. But I would say that's just the natural thing. Marriage builds people. Yeah. Marriage creates a stronger person on both spouses' side because it's a natural grind process that is a, it literally just forces you to look into your own shortcomings. And if you're not strong enough to stand there and stare at those shortcomings, it's going to crush you. Yeah, I, I told I agree with that. I agree with that. How long have you been married? So I've been married now, it'll be 13 years here in a couple of months. And so my oldest is 12, mm-hmm. just to put things in perspective. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's still, and you still have, you know, years to go, but again, you, you're learning, you're learning as we go. And again, 40, 50 years, you, you're still going to be learning, you know, and I can so guarantee true. you, you're still, you, your wife is still going to drive you crazy. Like I drive my husband, I drive my husband nuts. He doesn't know what shield he's going to get on what given day. <laughs> he doesn't, <laughs> you know, but, but that's, but what, what makes it so wonderful is the fact that even though he doesn't know what Sheila he's going to get on what given day, he still accepts the Sheila that he's going to get on that given day. If I can take it one step further, if I were coaching your husband, he's not here. So super dangerous to coach someone who's (laughs) not here, but I'm gonna do it anyways, because I like to live dangerously. I would challenge him to say, in what way should you be grateful that you do not know the Sheila you're going to get on a given day? And here's what I mean by that. If you did know she would not be living her feminine because the feminine is chaos. The feminine is novel variety. And what men crave in women is not masculinity. We don't want masculinity as a general rule. We want femininity. Yes. And the more, if you didn't have that random chance of being whatever Sheila you might be with on whatever day, <laughs> then you also wouldn't have that feminine energy that he loves so much. Right. And so I would encourage him to be grateful as painful as it may be to be grateful for that random variability because from it too comes his greatest happiness. I'm going to, I'm, you know what? I'm going to make sure he definitely, you know, <laughs> one. I'm like, hun, I'm going to sit him down and watch this, but I love that. But, um, your bio mentions extensive reading and knowledge in self-help coaching business and faith-based information. How do you incorporate these diverse areas of expertise in your coaching practice? You know, it's really a disappointing modern notion that somehow religion and science are opposed to each other. I I reject that statement entirely. In fact, historically, you cannot look at the foundations of science and not immediately acknowledge it was all religious orders that Mm -hmm. began the scientific endeavor. Exactly. In fact, even the fundamental scientific process, which involves questioning, we only question when we expect there to be an answer that's rational. It presupposes the existence of rational order. When then the question would be, well, why would there be rational order? And the only answer there is because there has to be something that created it. You know, it's so common when I talk to an atheist and they'll say, well, scientifically, we've determined this. I'm like, oh, well, how'd you do that? And they say, well, well, I have this computer that does this and this and this. Mm-hmm. Oh, how'd you get the computer? Was that computer assembled by random processes that could have diverged in a different case of who knows what origin? Mm-hmm. And if so, would you trust it? And they say, oh, oh, well, well, no, it was planned. 
Like, well, so too is your brain. And that's where this is coming from. And we need to understand that there is no internal conflict. There are times that one or the other science or religion may step outside the realm of their competence in which to speak. When religion starts making statements about the nature of the layout of the galaxy, mm-hmm. it's quite possible they've stepped outside their realms. When, sta- when science starts making statements about the nature of what it is to love and how love manifests, it's quite possible it has stepped outside of its realm. But at the heart of it, one of my claims right now is that modern psychology is painfully, slowly rediscovering the truths outlined in the Bible 2,000 years ago. And when I was in graduate school, we used to joke and we would say, well, if you want to, to be really efficient, you can go spend six months and plan the perfect experiment to relearn what you would have found in the library with four hours of searching. (laughs) And they fold together perfectly. When we look at things like sin and how do we deal with sin, shame, guilt. We look at the ideas of who am I and in what light do I view myself? What am I? These fundamental quintessential human questions, the science and psychology align perfectly. When I look at the the value to a child of having a mommy and a daddy, mm-hmm. and when they when something disrupts that, there's damage. We need to understand that damage is real. And again, the psychology and the science ex- go perfectly hand in hand on this. Uh, sorry, the psychology and the faith go perfectly hand in hand on right. this. Mm-hmm. And the solution is identical for both of them, but is made more complete with both. I have a lot of um, individuals in my life who who question a lot of things, and 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 this this is not part of what I wanted to ask you, but one of the things, and 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 you can um, you can not answer it if you don't want. But what do you think of this whole alien thing here? So <laughs> I, 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 you know, you you're the totally. right person for this. No, no, question. no, no, no. I think that's a great question. <laughs> Here's how I look at this. Mm-hmm. God is a God who loves beauty and diversity and wonder. Did you ever wonder why God created a universe so vast? There are literally parts of the universe right now that are so far away from us and moving away from us so fast, we literally cannot see them. We detect them only indirectly by subtle second order radiation effects. Yet nevertheless, God decided, let's create those stars. And I bet you there's probably some planets around those stars too, right? Mm-hmm. And why in the world would he do that? Because Even us humans can't even see them. Why would he bother creating those? But God delights and glories in creating the beautiful. And he creates, I I, I love hiking and I live in Northern Idaho. And every now and then I'm hiking, I will discover, like I'll go off trail and I'll find some beautiful flower or natural setting that's just stunning. Like it just touches your heart and you're like, your your, your brain just turns off. It's like, yeah. Wow, it's so beautiful. And I may be the only person who ever sees that. And I wonder sometimes how many of those exist that no human ever beholds. Yeah. And so when I consider this God who creates such variety and such beauty, just recklessly beautiful stuff that he makes, Mm -hmm. I think it's entirely possible he may may indeed make more forms of life. I don't hold any expectation he did, but I also would not be surprised at all if he did. And so towards that end, I think when the rubber meets the road, most of what people talk about with aliens today, I think is about getting attention and, and headline grabbing and photoshopping, whatever. Right. And but it, when if if it all comes out that there actually are aliens, totally would not surprise me in the slightest. Wouldn't surprise you here, but and I agree. You know, sometimes I um I like to walk. I've been on this really. You know, uh, I've said this quite a, in quite a few of my podcasts. I have been on a a Sheila self journey this year. And I've gotten into, you know, self-care, well-being, and I'm exercising more and I'm walking, doing a lot of walking. And one of, you know, I love the seasons. I'm not a big winter fan, but I loved 
you know, summer, fall, and you know, I'm a summer baby, but I love summer, fall, and spring. But fall is now becoming one of my favorite seasons. You know why? Because when I go out walking, I love to see the 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 change in the the you know yeah. and that and and I walk around and sometimes it, it you know it's it's it, it it amazes me the beauty you know that 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 the things that God has done with with that in the in the the leaves changing to those beautiful colors and and it, it's just remarkable God loves beautiful things right so I mean Hey, you never know. You never know. So we'll we'll look we'll look to see what happens in the future with that one. But I love that you have a sense of humor. You know, I I how do you infuse fun and laughter into your coaching sessions? And how does it impact the overall experience of your clients? C.S. Lewis once wrote that there are some ideas that when they grip us have us in such a tight grip that the only possible response that's healthy is belly laughter. And let me give a proper, let me give you an example of this that might show. And imagine that I am worried about, uh, let's say running out of gas and gas money, but my job requires me to be a delivery person. Well, if I, I spin my head up so much, well, I can't spend gas to deliver because I'm going to run out of gas, but I can't do the gas to can't not spend gas because I can't actually do my job. I can like spin myself up more and more and more and more, right? And eventually, the only thing to do is to step back and say, <laughs> this whole thing is beyond silly. I just need to be able to step outside and be like, I'm not in charge of my business or not it's going to succeed. That's up to God. I'm yeah. going to do my business the best I can. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things. I'll, I'll, make this, I'll bring this home to a lot more painful point that we've been talking about is marriage. There's a lot of things that maybe a husband's really worried about. Is my wife going to be connecting with me in the bedroom or not? Mm-hmm. And then he starts getting himself really worked up over that. Well, when he does that, his behavior towards her changes. And instead of becoming in a confident, seductive, attractive way, he comes in in a weaker way because he's so worried about this and anxious. And then that actually, in a funny way, spins her behavior exactly in the direction that he was afraid it would go. Mm-hmm. Right. And so at some point, we just as men have to step back and just laugh at our own silliness to say, yeah, I was causing my own problem. I guess wasn't I? That was kind of me. And when we can laugh at it, we diffuse the poison. We diffuse the toxin yeah. because there's two routes that moment can go. And I'm going to stick with this marriage example, because for most men, the bedroom connection is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And when we realize, and this is Wait, often can I say brutal. something? Most yeah. women also, most oh, women also now, don't just say men, but, but I'll, I'll go ahead, go right ahead. I, I'm more hesitant to speak for, for women because I happen not to be one, but right. that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not true for them as well. But when you realize whatever the goal is, this thing that's really important to me that I've sabotaged and I've gotten my own way, option number one is shame and self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And that is utterly toxic. And option number two is to laugh at my own silliness and to start again. Right. This is one of the deepest truths of the Christian faith, that when we fall, when we miss the target, when we sin, the right response is to repent. Yep, I did it. Repent, confess, let it go, move on. Because anything longer is just dragging the poison forward with you in the future. And laughter is like this this secret nuclear weapon of releasing some of that tension and that poison from, and keeping us from dragging it forward. That that's laughter. Laughter does good. That's like so much music. fun. It's, it's good. Music is good for the soul. Laughter's laughter also, I believe, you know. So um, what strategies or techniques do you use to help individuals achieve their goals and over- overcome obstacles? Can you share any success stories where your coaching made a significant 
significant difference in someone's life? So I, I was recently given permission by a client to share this story abstractly. Mm-hmm. And this individual was born in a family that was less than ideal, as we all are. But the particular way this this was came up to pass was that they blamed this individual for a lot of things. And there's like some, some low-level gaslighting kind of going on. And so this individual learned to adopt undue responsibility for everything around him. All right. And so in his perspective, well, well, it's my fault that this goes wrong. You know, nothing to do with him stuff with the family. It became, he had multiple jobs. He had all these other obligations, but he was so anxious and so worried about, can I, can I make sure I get it done here? Can I make sure I get this one going done? Cause if it's not, it's on me, then I'm a failure if this goes wrong. Right. right. And, and this is a common motif for a lot of men to internalize an external failure as an identity of failure of self. Right. And so what we did with this individual, and this was very, very painful, was to differentiate who was he and what was the message his parents and family sent him growing up. And and let me be super clear, Sheila, when I work with individuals, we commonly look at some mistakes parents made. And I never do that to try to class blame at the parents because I'm a parent too. And again, you really shouldn't tell them this one, but I also sometimes make mistakes with my kids. There right. are sometimes right. I may raise my voice or have unreasonable expectations. Mm-hmm. That all happens. So the question is not, do I want to blame the parents? The question is, what do I do with this man now? And to separate out his identity as a beloved child of God from these performance metrics of, does this particular business succeed? Is this particular person happy with him? And is it possible that someone could be unhappy with him and still be true that he's a good man? And as we go through this, we first have to identify what is the nature of the wound that was caused here. And it doesn't matter where it comes from. In this particular case, it came from his family of origin. But this, what is this wound? And this wound is one of misunderstanding my identity is being merely a reflection of other people's opinion of me. And this is, I think, a common wound that a lot of people have right now. And then we have to explore that. Why was that there? How do we mourn the real damage that was done in your life that led to this wound being embedded in you going forward? Um, In this particular case, there was what I call a vow that had been taken. And a vow is something when we make a promise that says, well, I will never fail at this. I will never let someone else, you know, this fail for someone else, because oftentimes we would say that in response to somewhere where we were failed. And those vows are just as toxic. They sound good, but we need to identify those vows. We need to release those vows and learn that I can be worthy of love, even if I do whatever that vow was. You know, I'll share my own story here for a second. One of my vows was I'll never be poor. I grew up in this horrible family that very, very abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually, all of it, very, very poor. And I viewed a lot of the problems as coming from lack of money. And so when I transitioned from corporate to entrepreneurial, one of the challenges is I had to confront this vow that I had made. I didn't even know it was there. I had to confront the vow of I will never be poor. And we need to reach this place as humans in our introspection where we can look into ourselves, look at our ugly bits. I don't mean physical bits. I mean, emotionally, where is it that we fail, that we hurt, that we cause damage? Where is it that we have been damaged? Where are the parts that are ugly because someone else mangled them? And love those parts as well, accept those parts as they are, and release the vows and say, I am worthy of love, even if I'm not liked by this particular person. Mm-hmm. And the transformation this man went through, he, he described it once as just great lightness, this freedom, this levity, this fresh air that came in when when he didn't have to sacrifice his wife and his family to make this particular business happy. He didn't have to, throw, to disregard his wife's desires to appease what his mother wanted him to do. Yeah. 
And I'm not saying he wasn't still honor his mother. Of course, he still wants to honor his mother. Mm-hmm. But there's the balance and there's the freedom to make a decision from I see all the parameters and I balance them this way versus I'm a slave to this childhood wound that has conquered me. And I will say that in this process, in his particular story, his wife was one of our, my greatest assets because his wife loved him so much. She was a very patient and holy woman. And she encouraged him so well through this process. And the littlest progress he made, she'd be like, oh, look at that. You did that better this time. Previously, you would have caved and given your mother exactly what to this time. All you said is, well, let me wait and think about it. And those are the steps we have to make as we learn to stand on our two feet, as we gain that strength to push back against whatever the wound was. But let me maybe wrap this up by a wonderful image that I think is so gives so much hope. In the world, when we break something, what do we do with it? Like right now, if I broke this pen, I'd throw it away. Throw it away. That's what we do. Yeah. What does God do with broken things? He fixes them. He heals he them. He makes them stronger. When you break a bone and it heals, there is more bone mass there than there was originally. It's actually stronger. Mm -hmm. And here's my claim. When you take an emotionally wounded child who grows up into an adult and he confronts that voluntarily, goes into that space, accepts the healing of the Lord, he ends up stronger than he would have been had it never happened in the first place. And there's tremendous hope in that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. I like that. I like that. Lastly, Here's the, here's the question of the hour. Oh, boy. <laughs> of the half hour. What are you grateful for? Oh, the honest answer to that is not nearly enough. Um, but at the moment, I'm grateful. The most gratefulness I have is the older I get, Sheila, the more clearly I see the number of times that I have profoundly screwed up. Not like... Oh, I didn't refill the toilet paper after the toilet paper ran out. Like, okay, that's kind of uncool, but like that's that's a pretty minor one. Mm-hmm. But the number of times when I have really lost on those I love, those I'm called to care for, and the number of times I've hurt people that I love very badly, and we don't see that oftentimes in the moment, but the number of times I've done that, and yet still, God has forgiven me. God hasn't just cast me to hell like sometimes I think I deserve, right. but God has forgiven me and given me another chance, and the fact that those people have forgiven me. And... As I get older, I'm moved to deeper and deeper gratitude for the love of my wife, the love of my children, the love of my extended family. Because let's be honest, I've hurt all of them. I've overreacted badly. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I've done sometimes even physical harm. Mm -hmm. And there's been forgiveness and healing. And that is something that I don't deserve. And I'm profoundly grateful for that. Well, Michael, I thank you for being a guest on Sheila's Take. And uh, first of all, is it, let my listeners know how they can get in touch with you if they want to uh, speak with you or get any counseling from you, coaching. You have a website? I do. So let me tell you how to remember this. I'm a life coach. I work with men and I'm Catholic. Uh, I, I work with other people, but I, I'm very proud of my faith. And that is a part of the work I do. So if you just type in Catholic life coach for men, you will find me. You'll find my podcast. That's the name of the podcast. You'll find my website, throw.com. You have the website. I, I'm really bad at website advertising and SEO. So I try to make it really easy, right? So Catholic Life Coach for Men will throw me all over the place. Okay, perfect. And of course, I gotta have the I gotta have that dad joke. You gotta give me oh. something before you leave. You gotta give me something. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I got a lot of good dad jokes here. I just heard <laughs> another one the other day. But let's start with this one. What is the best part of a waffle? Um I don't know. What is the best part of a waffle? A W. Without it, it's awful. 
All right. Okay. Yeah, one more follow-up. One more follow-up. I got too many of these. All right. <laughs> Why did the teddy bear not want to eat his dinner? Oh, I know this one. We because he was stuffed. There you go. Isn't it great? <laughs> All right. I have one for you. And then I love we can it. Go. Okay. Uh if two veg- vegetarians get into a fight, is it still a beef? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. I thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for being a guest on Sheila's Take. And I wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sheila. It's been a delight. I've really enjoyed our time together. Join me next time where I will continue to discuss more of today's issues. You can hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, or email me at Sheila's-take at outlook.com. For topics you would like to discuss or if you would like to be a guest on Sheila's Take, I am your host, Sheila Dunbar. Blessings to you.